Well, on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to our April 2019 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and debate. So my first guest is Dr. Marin Koloff, professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine from Washington University in St. Louis. He's here to talk about his article, Point, Does Persistent or Worsening ARDS Refractory to Optimize Ventilation and Proning Deserve a Trial of Prostacycline? Yes. So Marin, thanks for joining us. Sure. No, I'm glad to be here. I, uh, I guess I'll start out by just uh, sort of making the point that when we talk about optimizing mechanical ventilation in patients who have refractory uh, ARDS or hypoxemia, we're really talking about you know individuals who are quite ill. Uh, we usually have gone through our usual maneuvers, which include providing a lung protective mode of mechanical ventilation for them where we're trying to minimize any injury to the lung. And that usually means limiting the tidal volume in these individuals and using an appropriate level of PEEP. Uh, these patients are typically also going to receive neuromuscular blocking agents uh, as they've been demonstrated to improve clinical outcome as well. Yet despite those maneuvers, we're still having problems in achieving an adequate oxygenation level uh, typically, we're talking about patients who are going to have PF ratios that are going to be uh, less than 150 in this particular situation. Um, they're going to be requiring uh, FiO2 levels that are typically going to be above 80. The level of PEEP typically will be in the range of around 12 to 18 centimeters of water. And despite those types of maneuvers, we're still running into problems. And so the situation is, you know, where do we go from there? And at least in the article uh, that I was part of, uh, including Patrick Aguilar, who's one of my colleagues here who helped uh, write the paper, uh, you know, we have a long track record of using uh, inhaled prostacycline, primarily in the form of Flolam, uh, really as a means of trying to salvage people and buy time uh, in order to let other modalities of treatment have an effect. And so we actually included an algorithm within the article that we published that sort of walks through how we sort of do this. Um, okay. And, yeah. Right, let me let me cut you off because I, I, no, that's that set the perfect stage. That because that, that's that's that sort of optimizes what's the discussion we're trying to have here. And and sure. um, so let me introduce your our, our counterpart here, uh, Dr. Eddie Fan, who's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and he's here to talk about his article, Counterpoint. Does persistent or worsening ARDS refractory to optimize ventilation and proning deserve a trial of prostacycline? No. So, Eddie, thanks for joining us. And, and let me ask you, you know, Marin just gave a really nice sort of intro, you know, background so that we all are on the same page. Um, anything you wanted to add to that so that our listeners at least understand the crux of what we're trying to talk about? And then the two of you can, you know, clearly frame the debate and, and, and go from there. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, glad to be here. Um, I agree with everything that Dr. Uh, Kolov said. It was a very nice, as you mentioned, introduction to the to the scenario and uh, the typical interventions we would undertake. Perhaps the one thing I might mention is that in, in speaking about uh, patients with persistent or severe ARDS in which we're considering these um, adjunctive therapies, one other adjunct that might be important to mention would be uh, prone positioning in patients whose PA O2 to FiO2 ratio is less than 150 that we would also undertake uh, a prone uh, positioning, which would be flipping them from their backs uh, to their uh, onto their stomachs for about 16 to 18 hours, presuming that they tolerate that maneuver. Again, as a strategy to limit uh, further injury to the lung uh, and worsening of the severity of lung injury, which may, again, lead to the need for the escalation of 
therapies for hypoxemia and these sorts of uh, um, things. Great. So, so I mean, Marin, you wrote you you know the way this was a point counterpoint. So, <laughs> Marin, you go first. Um, let let me ask you, if, and, and please feel free to you know start making your points and, and go through the algorithm that you proposed. Um, I mean, and I guess as a as a framework, I'll you know say why why inhaled uh, prostacyclin are we having that as part of the debate as opposed to inhaled nitric oxide, for example, and then as another framework, um, you know along the way, and I'm sure will come up, is where do we think the role of ECMO goes uh, in, in our algorithm, which I believe you do outline, uh, Dr. Koloff, in your algorithm. So please, gentlemen, um, uh, have at it. <laughs> sure. Let, let me just say that the algorithm that I show in the paper is simply one that we've developed here and, and we've used locally. It's, it's worked well for us over the years. I mean, certainly we want to be using evidence-based therapies when it comes to managing patients who have severe ARDS, particularly if it doesn't appear to be responding to some of the early usual measures that we've already talked about. Part of the problem is that, you know, the evidence sometimes lags behind uh, our abilities to develop new therapies. And, you know, even if we look at something like prone positioning, uh, there were a number of randomized control trials that were negative before we had a positive study. Uh, the same could be said of patients who receive paralytic agents as well. Nevertheless, you know, we now have trials demonstrating that those are effective treatments. We sort of look at this as we have tools that are available to us. Every patient is not exactly the same. The more tools we have, the more likely we are to respond to the needs of the individual patient. And at least from the standpoint of nitric oxide and Flowland, we sort of look at those as being somewhat interchangeable. Nitric oxide, obviously, you know, is a gas. Flowland is an aerosol. Uh, there are some situations where nitric oxide might be preferable, particularly in the operating theater. But for ARDS patients, we generally will use Flowland. And we use it in a couple of contexts. Uh, one, you know, for individuals where we're looking at just buying some time uh, as a bridge to another treatment modality, very frequently, that might be uh, pursuing ECMO, which, by the way, the most recent ECMO trial is a negative trial, but we have just are going through flu season, and we've had quite a few patients with influenza this year, probably already more than 20, that have undergone ECMO. So Flowland is really a tool... Uh, I think that uh, based on our experience, we know that patients who have an improvement in their FEV1 or, excuse me, in their PF ratios who are receiving nitric oxide or Flowland in this case do better than those who don't respond. And from that perspective, it may be somewhat of a uh, means of judging who needs to go on to something like ECMO. But I would agree that proning is obviously something that we would want to do as well. Uh, the reality is that there are still patients who we can't prone, uh, whether they're severely traumatized patients or we're still resuscitating them, we're placing chest tubes. There are things that we're doing that may not allow us to get them in a prone position, and certainly something like inhaled Flowland uh, may be helpful in that scenario. Eddie, what do you think? I mean, to build off of that and counter that or find points of agreement, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think I suspect in the end, uh, as many of these point counterpoints go, that Dr. Colliff and I probably are very close on how we think the optimal management of the severe ARDS patient is. I guess maybe uh, at a high level, I might uh, start by saying, I mean, I mean, the first thing is, is that it's interesting that, uh, you know, at least from the lung safe uh, study, a global epidemiologic study, 
Um, patients who develop severe ARDS are in the minority. About 25% of patients in this large international cohort develops very severe ARDS with PA O2 to the FIO2 ratios less than 100. And amongst those, a subset who develop true refractory hypoxemia are even less. And the important thing is, is that we know from prior work from Renee Stapleton that the majority of patients with ARDS actually don't die of refractory hypoxemia. So I think that's an important thing to do. And the, and the crux of most of the interventions that we undertake for these patients is to limit ventilator-induced lung injury, which may worsen the, or potentiate the underlying injury and progress the severity and then need or develop refractory hypoxemia requiring these other adjunctive interventions. So the key is limiting um, ventilator-induced lung injury, and most of the interventions that we talked about, part of the rationale is to do that. Uh, and we have some randomized controlled trial data suggesting that uh, um, these may have benefits on patient-important outcomes. And so I think the important thing here is that despite the strong physiologic rationale, perhaps, for using something like an inhaled um, pulmonary vasodilator, like inhaled nitric oxide or epoprostenol, is that we've been fooled many times before um, in critical care and medicine in general, where strong phys physiologic rationale doesn't translate into improvements in patient-important outcomes, and nitric oxide is perhaps a good example. So we've had a number of randomized control trials examining nitric oxide in um, a diverse patient population from uh, pediatric patients to adults, which none of which have really demonstrated a very robust or rigorous um, reduction in mortality. And indeed, these trials have been um, put together in a number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which again have not really shown um, uh, a benefit of nitric oxide. In fact, one recent meta-analysis by Neil Adhikari in the British Medical Journal showed that it uh, not only did it not improve mortality, but it actually was associated with increased uh, risk of uh, acute kidney injury. And a subsequent individual patient-level meta-analysis by Neil Adhikari showed that when you parsed out the data by PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, there was really no threshold at which the use of inhaled nitric oxide led to a benefit. So you might, again, wonder that the more severe the patient, maybe those are the ones that would benefit from nitric oxide. So looking across a broad range of PF ratios from 200 all the way down to about 50, there was no threshold of PF ratio at which uh, there was a benefit for inhaled nitric oxide. So, um, so there's that, that data. And then finally, we now recognize that some of these interventions that we're talking about, so low tidal volume ventilation, prone positioning, and indeed, I guess, depending on where you land on ECMO in the recent trials, show that these interventions didn't save patients based on their ability to reverse hypoxemia. So important to note that in the ARDS network trial of low tidal volume ventilation, the group that got randomized to low tidal volumes had actually worse PF ratio on day one, but they derived the nearly 9% reduction in mortality. Similarly, in the PROCEVA study, the positive randomized control trial of prone positioning, response to proning did not depend on the level of hypoxemia. And in the most recent EOLIA trial, I might disclose that I was an investigator of that trial. Um, interestingly, the subgroup of patients that benefited most from ECMO were, was not the most hypoxemic subset of patients, but were those who had uh, respiratory acidosis and hypercapnia. So the key, again, here is not really reversing hypoxemia. It's limiting ventilator-induced lung injury, or at least that's the uh, supposition about the mechanism of benefit of these interventions. And at the end of the day, I guess, you know, from, from our institution's point of view, given the lack of robust data for the use of nitric oxide, the potential perhaps for important side effects, the costs related to initiating these therapies, is that we wouldn't want to delay um, the institution of evidence-based therapies such as prone positioning or ECMO based on 
the response or lack of response to a trial of uh, inhaled nitric oxide. Baron, what do you think? I agree with everything that Dr. Fan said there. I, I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, when we're talking about these patients, and most of them typically come in during influenza season, at least for us, uh, during the course of the year, um, you know, we're not just using one treatment. I mean, these patients are all receiving a lung protective mode of mechanical ventilation. We're also paralyzing them in the vast majority of cases. They're also being treated with Flolan, I would say, at least in our medical intensive care units uh, when they come in, at least in the short term. And then they typically will receive proning positioning. The issue is that at least based on what we have seen in the past, and uh, we had one of our uh, group residents publish a paper in respiratory care, although it was just a local observational experience here, once the patient gets treated with Flolan, and we prefer Flolan over nitric oxide because it's a much less expensive uh, modality for us, if we see improvements in the PF ratio, those patients typically do better. Uh, it may be that they're not as sick as the more severe patients, and it may allow us to then not have to go on to something like ECMO, which without that particular mode of therapy, we might end up using. And we know that we don't really have absolute firm evidence that ECMO will be salvaging these individuals. So... I think as part of our armamentarium and our algorithm, it's just another tool that we have. Uh, and I would not withhold proning someone, and I would have to say that the majority of patients that we put on Flowland end up getting proned. And so it's just another tool that we end up using. And then typically, at least in our scenario, when we do prone patients, they're typically only undergoing that maneuver for a day or two. And then once we stop proning them, we typically wean off the flow land very quickly. And, and then typically it's just a matter of weaning them from the ventilator. Now, for that group of patients that don't respond to those treatments, ECMO is the next course of action. Uh, and it's typically VV ECMO. So, again, I understand the data, uh, but, you know, I think it's a useful tool. And, and I've run respiratory therapy here for quite a while, and it's something that we've been using for more than 25 years. And, and even though I don't have a randomized controlled trial to hang my hat on, from a practical perspective, I, I think there are situations and patients where it does offer some benefit, but not to preclude the use of other interventions. Yeah, so let's, let's I mean, it sounds to me that between the two of you, one of the core is obviously the, the lack of evidence, or at least, you know, perceived lack of evidence here in regards to using uh, the epoprostenol. Um, and, and, and maybe part of the d debate, um, Eddie, is that the, in looking at the figure uh, that um, Marin uh, proposed and, and published in, in, the, in the article is, you know, where epoprostenol is in relation to other, you know, modalities, that it's above prone positioning. And, of course, I think it's, he just clarified it kind of sounds like for a lot of these patients, these things move rapidly. It's not like there's a... Uh, uh, you know, these things get added up and dialed up rather quickly. Um, so is, is, is it an issue that you don't think we should have it on at all, or just maybe where it's being positioned and not viewed as, as salvage, if you will? Um, I, I think that's a very good question, and uh, I think, I think uh, again, I agree with, uh, with what Dr. Call said, and I think it's important maybe to recognize, and this is a point I think he raised at the beginning of the podcast, this is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in across 
you know, jurisdictions, hospitals, centers, regions, in terms of the interventions that they have readily available, the interventions that they could uh, refer patients to quickly and get access to. And so I think it is very important to have in the armamentarium um, a variety uh, of uh, um, therapeutic interventions at your disposal that you could use uh, for patients who come with severe ERDS as our scenario is focused on. So I guess what I might qualify um, my statement with, uh, my statement, my previous statements is, is that there definitely may be centers um, and perhaps the vast majority of centers who don't have ready access, for instance, to ECMO, um, who may be, I think, and again, we learned this from LungSafe, that the, at least in North America, proning still seems to be a, uh, a rare beast and uh, doesn't seem to happen very often, although it might be on the rise. Um, and so centers who may have access to inhaled epiprostanol and or inhaled uh, nitric oxide who are waiting to send the patient to a referral center who could undertake more advanced interventions such as prone positioning and or uh, ECMO, like that would seem to be a very reasonable approach to take. So I think understanding that, um, just as Dr. Califf mentioned, that it doesn't preclude, I think is the important thing, uh, progressing to other uh, evidence-based therapies uh, that might be important in centers that can provide it, and that's really the key thing. So as long as that's clear, I wouldn't uh, be opposed to having that on the on the protocol. And certainly, again, in centers that don't have um, uh, other advanced interventions available, then, but have this available, then using this as a bridge to, to referring the, to, you know, stabilizing the patient in the attempts to refer them to a, to a, a tertiary or quaternary care center that could provide prone positioning or ECMO would seem, uh, would seem very uh, reasonable. And let me just Another, add that uh, yeah, yeah, please, we, please. We, you know, we, I mean, we've been routinely proning patients. In fact, I've been doing it uh, from the time I was in the military almost 30 years ago. So it, it's part of our norm, and we were proning patients well before, and, and we're very aggressive about proning patients well before we had any randomized control trials to demonstrate that there was a mortality benefit. So I do think that in some of these scenarios that you know the data may lag behind and, and may take a little more time to allow us to get a better understanding of how to use these treatments. Um, the other thing I will say is, you know, we do see patients who have PFOs, who have significant shunts from the right heart to the left heart that might respond to Flowland in that scenario, particularly if they have underlying lung disease. And we do run into that scenario of patients here who have either COPD or interstitial lung disease, have known pulmonary hypertension. And in those scenarios, I think a drug like Flowland can also be beneficial uh, because it's not just pure ARDS. It's not the young trauma patient who develops ARDS or the young healthy person who develops influenza. So I agree, you know, with Dr. Fan that having multiple tools available to us that we can sort of identify what the best combination, if you will, of these therapies might be for an individual patient can be helpful. There definitely seems to be an institutionally-based experience and sort of what we're comfortable with and not comfortable with. Because if we're going to take the, the, this debate one step further um, and argue the, you know, data, non-data, but applying, you know, sort of general principles, um, why don't we talk about ECMO for a minute? I know we're not going to dive into too deep. It's not the definitive thrust of, of this podcast. But, you know, ECMO doesn't lately seem to be, be held to the same uh, level of evidence-based, uh, you know, love that we all have. And so I'd love to just hear both your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can start. I, I think, again, um, you know, when we're talking about ECMO, 
and I still do a fair number of nights and days and weekends in the ICU, it, it typically comes up uh, as a means of desperation. Uh, and, you know, we are an ECMO center. We have patients referred to us from outlying hospitals uh, in the tri-state area here. Um, and quite honestly, most of those patients that are referred to us for ECMO never get it because we're able to manage patients, I think, you know, using the algorithm that I'm demonstrating here. And the majority of them seem to do quite well without having to go on to ECMO. And I know we've got data from a number of different groups demonstrating that, you know, when you have patients transferred to ECMO centers, they typically, even without receiving ECMO, have better outcomes than if they remain at their non-ECMO center. So, I, I mean, even though we don't have that absolute perfect randomized control trial to justify the use of ECMO, uh, it is something that we still utilize and we use, utilize in appropriate situations uh, and we triage patients. And we're not going to put someone who has a terminal illness on ECMO, but we certainly will put that young person on ECMO who seems to be failing all of the other interventions in the algorithm. What's the experience in Toronto? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, agree more with uh, Dr. Collis. So we're also an ECMO center. Actually, we're the largest ECMO center in Canada uh, here at the, at, uh, the University Health Network. Uh, and we've also had a busy flu season, as, as Dr. Collis had mentioned. He had in, uh, down in his uh, center and uh, getting lots of referrals uh, of young patients with flu uh, for ECMO. But I completely agree. We would go through the same uh, gamut first of optimizing all the other evidence-based therapies that we had that we've talked about in this podcast, things like making sure that they have low tidal volume ventilation, an appropriate level of PEEP, neuromuscular blockade and with deep sedation, a trial of prone positioning in the absence of a contraindication before considering patients who are appropriate candidates uh, for ECMO therapy. And I 100% agree that uh, we get a fair number of uh, consults of patients who come uh, in extremis and by optimizing some of these other uh, tools that we have that um, we can actually uh, preclude the need or obviate the need for some of these patients to go on to ECMO. Um, I think it's hard at this point to, um, as a focus of this podcast, to talk about the challenges of interpreting the, the recent data. Um, I think we maybe as a high, at a high level need to get away from the idea of dichotomizing randomized controlled trial data as being positive or ne negative based on a threshold of a p-value of 0.05. I think that's part of the trouble well, there are many challenges with the interpretation of the EOLIA trial. Um, um, you might be aware that, again, and to disclose that uh, I was an author on a Bayesian reanalysis of the EOLIA trial, trial that was published in JAMA, suggesting across a threshold of uh, skeptical to enthusiastic prior beliefs on ECMO, incorporating the available data that uh, it still had a pretty high likelihood of having a posterior uh, benefit uh, in these patients with severe ARDS. Uh, that was also um, supported by a meta-analysis of the recent trials, although agreed there are only two modern randomized control trials, the CSER trial and uh, EOLIA that was published just last year. So, uh, But again, I think the important thing here that we can both agree on is, is that um, having an algorithmic approach uh, to the severe patient, severe ARDS patient is important. Utilizing some of these other tools that we have uh, prior to going on to ECMO, whatever your belief might be, seems to be reasonable uh, before going to something that is as, you know, aggressive, risky, high-cost, um, resource-intensive uh, as ECMO. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by by even both you know the, both the literature and both your experiences of that. As soon as a patient is transferred to you know to a referring ECMO center, uh, that you know, how many of them, need, like you said, don't ultimately end up on ECMO, and it, it probably argues more for the optimized critical care and the approach to the ARDS patient in a you know large you know high volume high experience center like where both of you work. Yeah, I would agree with that 100 percent. And uh, the problem, though, uh, and, and I can't speak for Toronto, but frequently, uh, you know, we get backed up. And uh, that was certainly the case last year and even this year to some extent where, you know, our ICUs, despite having over 140 ICU beds, we reach a point where we may not be able to take any of those patients uh, at peak season. So that becomes part of the issue. And, and that might be even another argument for having things like, uh, inhaled FloLam available, at least to temporize some of those patients before they can get out to an ECMO center. Yeah, Dr. Fan, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, we have the same challenges. Uh, we have far far fewer uh, ICU beds than it sounds like uh, Dr. Kolov has. We have 30 uh, in our uh, center and definitely uh, get backed up, as uh, uh, especially in these busy winter months for flu, uh, to provide uh, ECMO for some of these sick patients or, or uh, consideration of ECMO for some of these sick patients. So, again, I, I agree. I think this is exactly the uh, the reason why having other readily available therapies that could be more widely disseminated to centers um, makes a lot of sense. Um, and including, again, as a part of that, it's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that uh, proning has a long and a strong tradition uh, there uh, in Dr. Collis Center, but I think, in, uh, at least from our experience here, that trying to get other uh, centers uh, on board with uh, the idea of providing prone positioning to some of these sick patients uh, in their uh, in their uh, presenting center. Let's talk about side effects of of uh, inhaled prostacyclin or negative aspects. Yeah, I mean, I think the side effect profile for inhaled prostacycline is relatively low. Um, you know, you may have the occasional issue related to thrombocytopenia, but even that uh, tends to be more of a problem with IV therapy. Uh, the big thing to recognize is because it's an aerosol, if you're administering it as opposed to nitric oxide, if you've got any air fluid levels in the airways or within the lung, it may not penetrate as well as a drug like nitric oxide. But for the most part, uh, it's a very easy drug to give with minimal side effects. Okay. Any, anything to add? Do you agree? Yeah, I think other than the ones that um, that uh, Dr. Collis listed, again, is, is, is just a, at least an aggregated data of the available uh, clinical trial data. There was this association, at least with inhaled nitric oxide, of uh, maybe an increased uh, amount of renal injury associated with uh, its administration. Uh, again, but that, that was in a, in a meta-analysis uh, of clinical trials. But uh, and, and then only to mention, although not traditionally thought of as a side effect, is that you know, the, the, this uh, therapy, um, at least inhaled nitric oxide, is reasonably expensive here in Canada. I, I, as I understand it, I think it's also reasonably expensive in the United States, um, whereas agreed inhaled epiprostanol is, uh, is a fair bit uh, cheaper. So we've been talking for a little while, and I want to be respectful of your guys' time, and so both of you, thank you so much for your time, and, and be respectful of our listeners. What, what sort of final thoughts do you, do you have here, or where, where, you know, what should we leave our listeners with um, as, a, as a discussion? We've clearly found some major points of agreement, and, and maybe it centers more around of, of where to think about uh, inhaled EPO, but I, just, I would like to get sort of final thoughts from you guys. Yeah. 
I guess my final thought would be, regardless of the type of hospital that you work at, even if it's a smaller community hospital, uh, you should have some type of a protocol in place to deal with these patients, particularly during flu season. Uh, and hospitals may be ramping up to deal with these patients during that time of year. But having a protocol in place that allows the nurses, the therapists, the hospitalists who might be working in that ICU at night to know what's available to them and how to proceed may be very helpful. And that way, you know, they can go through this algorithm while they're waiting for the patient to be transferred to that higher center. So I, I really do think that uh, this should almost be an absolute requirement for any ICU, at least in the U.S. and maybe even in Canada. Okay. Agree. Abby? Yeah, I think the only other thing I might add uh, to those uh, comments is the, again, is to um, uh, perhaps identify uh, early if possible um, patients who are deteriorating quickly or their trajectory seems to not follow the uh, usual trajectory and you're worried about them to uh, call early to referral centers. Again, if your center is not one that could provide some of these more advanced uh, therapies like prone positioning or or, um, or ECMO, that uh, early referral is better, uh, even if it's just a conversation and not an immediate transfer, uh, I think um, would be a very useful, uh, useful thing for, for smaller centers to undertake. Well, for our listeners, if you, if you uh, haven't had a chance to read the point-counterpoint articles, I, I strongly suggest you do. They, they, you know, they, this conversation really has expanded upon very nicely what's, what's written there and, and that actually full of really excellent references to, to sort of further deepen your knowledge on this topic. And, and to both of you, strong credit for the, for the very practical nature of, of you know, the debate that you had and both in the, you know, in the writing and then here today in the sense of trying to make it as real world as possible and explain for you know, our listeners no matter what their variety of resources, you know, what is our optimal way to try to think about these patients? So, so thank you both of you very much for a, a, both a great debate, but also I think some really kind of practical information for our listeners. So terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure.